Hey guys, I'm Joey and welcome into the fourth episode of the MLS Bench Podcast. Today, I'm extremely, extremely excited about what I've got coming to you in just a minute. That is an interview. I built, I've been building this up for quite a little bit now, so I'm bringing to you my interview with Joe Lowry from Total Soccer Show. Uh, he is just such a wealth of knowledge on the USMNT and on MLS, and so it kind of really works as we're transitioning from the uh, start to the, of the MLS season into this crucial international window for the United States. So I sat down with him and did a rather long interview that will be the podcast for today, and that will be coming to you in just a minute. First, I'm going to do that thing of asking you to subscribe, rate, review, recommend, download, retweet, all that good stuff, uh, because as I've said in the past, we cannot grow alone. We need help, and I would be so appreciative if you did even one of those things. It would truly mean the world, and thank you for all you've done up to this point already. So I think I'm just going to bring you my interview with Joe. Uh, we had a ton of fun. Uh, breaking down what's gone right and what's gone wrong so far in qualifying for the U.S., as well as what you can expect tonight in the Azteca versus Mexico and throughout the rest of the window. That should just be a ton of fun um, as the U.S. hopes to qualify and right the wrongs of four years ago. Um, we also talk about some uh, you know, bigger MLS storylines as we are an MLS pod. I wanted to get that in there. He uh, does a great job covering MLS as well, and so we just kind of touch on some uh, basic MLS storylines uh, before we get into the U.S. So I'll bring you bring you that in just a second. But as I mentioned last week on the pod, and like I've been mentioning, if you are in the Discord, um, uh, the MLS Bench Discord, and I will put that link in the description of this podcast. You can find it on Twitter as well. We will be having a roundtable to break down each of the games this qualifying cycle, and our first one to break down the Mexico game that is tonight will be tomorrow night. I will put out details in the Discord um, as to when that will be. I'll probably put those out tonight or tomorrow morning. Um, but if you want to participate in that roundtable discussion, a similar discussion to the one we had on the last podcast, you can just join the Discord. Um, and you're welcome to hop in uh, to the voice channel as we will just be talking uh, all things about the Mexico game and moving forward in qualifying. Again, that's tomorrow night. And you can find that link either in my Twitter in my Twitter bio or in this podcast description. So that should be a lot of fun. But without further ado, I'll just bring you my interview with Joe. So hey guys, I thought I would, um, especially as the international window is now upon us, I thought I would have someone on who can uh, cover the main topic of our podcast, which is the MLS, as well as uh, provide some great content as it comes to the USMNT. So we are recording this on Thursday as... The USMNT is set to face Mexico tonight in the Azteca. Uh, so I have on Joe Lowry to talk about all of that. He is a host on the Total Soccer Show, which is a very popular podcast in the American soccer sphere. So if you haven't checked it out, I think you should check that out. Uh, Joe, how's it going? Joey, it's going well. We've got a name connection. We've got an MLS and USMNT connection. I am excited to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, we're here. Uh, it, final three games in less than a week. We, we're going to know whether the U.S. makes it to the World Cup or not. You know, what, what are your general like vibes around it? Uh, I've enjoyed getting a chance to just watch the anticipation grow, both both to myself, but kind of around American soccer. This window is unlike anything that I personally have ever covered before, right? I mean, it all you open this with, you know, we're here. It, it all comes down to this, right? We really are here. Mm -hmm. 
tonight against Mexico and, and more importantly, Sunday against Panama and then Wednesday against Costa Rica. This is it, right? Greg Berhalter talked about it this week. This is the most important week of his professional coaching career. And I think that goes for a lot of the other people involved with this U.S. team right now. This is a big moment and it's put up or shut up time. And I'm just excited to get to watch them try and put up. Yeah, uh, so am I. And we will get to that in full detail in just a few minutes. But like I said, we are an MLS pod. So I want to hit on some MLS stuff because it did surprise me when I looked at the schedule. We have a few games this weekend, like three games, I think. Um, But we're through four weeks uh, and we have some very interesting storylines. So kind of what are you looking at as it pertains to MLS so far this season? Sure. So there's a few things that have caught my eye, but I'll start with just one of them. And, and that's SC Dallas, who are without a doubt the team I've enjoyed watching the most this season. So they've got Nico Estevez as their head coach coming over from the U.S. men's national team after switching places with Lucha Gonzalez. And they're playing like the U.S. men's national team, but they're doing, to my eye at least, a better job. And it's easier to do this stuff at club level than international level. So I'm not, I'm not trying to come out and say that Nico Estevez is a, a much better coach than Greg Berhalter or anything like that. But Dallas is coming out in this 4-3-3. They've got Paxton Pomichol playing centrally this year, which is huge. Jesus Ferreira, of course, coming off of that hat trick over the weekend against Portland. He's been in really good form all season, you know, throughout these first four games, not just against Portland. He's been good dropping in, creating, and also making really aggressive runs into the box and finding good shooting opportunities. He's, he's playing very, very well as that number nine. And then you have Alan Velasco, who's coming in as this club record transfer signing for FC Dallas as this left winger. He comes in in the first game against Nashville and scores this electric goal off the bench. And then again, was was good to my eye against Portland as well. So he's been nice to watch in both of his first two games. Dallas sitting on seven points after four games. They've got two wins, a draw and a loss. It's a decent start for them. They've played some good teams. They've already played New England. They've already played Toronto and they've played Nashville and Portland. Those are, are not bad. Toronto, of course, probably being the weakest, at least right now. But man, I've enjoyed so much of what Dallas is doing on the field. They're the most fun team to watch in my view right now in MLS. And I think they're playing good soccer. Yeah, I think that it is hard to compare uh, with the men's national team and Dallas. And it it is a different player set and obviously different competition levels. So I don't think you can make any judgments off the coaches like specifically, but it is fun to see Pomichol get back and healthy. Hopefully he stays fit. Um, and Ferreira, I think, is a it's a very interesting point that you make that he's played well in all four games because still, like it, so often, you'll hear about strikers measured in only goals, maybe goals and assists. But if you watch the games, the way that he plays and helps that team create chances, it, it, it's not quantifiable by just goals. Do you want to talk about that, like specifically? Yeah, I mean, there's other things that go into impacting soccer games. I mean, everything should boil down to goals, right? At the end of the day, that should be. The, the standard metric for everything, but there's different smaller things that factor in to create goals in the first place, right? Goals don't just magically appear. A goal takes a whole string of productive attacking actions and, and you know, poor defensive actions. It's hard to have goals, right? Otherwise, we'd see a lot more in individual games. The idea with Jesus Ferreira and how Estevez uses him and how brothers used him is that he's good at a lot of those other things that help create goals for other people and even for himself, right? So you think about that nine, classically, that player's staying high, pinning the center backs back, making runs in the box, staying in that area, and and being a big body to hold up play. And Ferreira can do some of those things, but he also drops in and acts as another midfielder at times and acts as this facilitating presence in the forward line 
to then go and allow Dallas or the U.S. to progress play, then he'll get in the box and he'll make some of those goal-scoring runs, which I think he's he's becoming good at. So he, he's, a, he's a more well-rounded striker than a lot of other players, and he just interprets that role differently. And right now, I think it's working for Dallas. You mentioned about goals being a um, like a buildup of a ton of strings of passes, and I think that that could be... Uh, you could see a great example of that in the um, Carolina's first goal at the weekend, um, hitting 10 of their 11 players, I think, on uh, en route to Carol, Carol Swiderski getting his first MLS goal. What have, um, what have you seen in Carolina so far this season? There's been some good, there's been some bad. Yeah, that's, that's the summary, I think, so far for Charlotte FC and Miguel Angel Ramirez and that roster. There's incompletion in how that squad has been built, right? Uh, Ramirez came out and said it. It's very clear when you look at their roster that it's not done. Their signings, in my view, have been pretty underwhelming, and I don't think they have the talent to compete, certainly in year one. Maybe that changes over the summer window. Maybe it doesn't. I'm, I'm skeptical. But in terms of on-field stuff, I've enjoyed bits and pieces, right? It's hard to build a team from scratch, and this team is certainly still growing on the field before our eyes. But they've used a number of different formations, which I'm sure uh, Ramirez isn't especially pleased. I'm guessing he'd rather have one or two set looks that he goes to and the players know the positioning of. But they played a few pretty drastically different shapes. It started in a back three against DC United in, in week one. They've since gone to, after you know, the first 30 minutes of the Galaxy game, they went to a back four and more of a 4-1-4-1, 4-3-3 kind of shape. And then last weekend against the Revolution, they go to a 4-4-2 diamond. So they've done a lot of different things. They've tweaked how they play based off of the opposition, which again, I don't know that Ramirez is as thrilled about. But for this team to stay afloat, I think they have to do that right now. That, that said, they've been, they've been flexible. They've been a bit more pragmatic than I think they'd appreciate on a regular basis. But Charlotte's also showing some pretty entertaining principles of play, which is what we expected out of Ramirez and this team, right? They'll build from the back. Their goalkeeper, I think, has the second most touches in MLS after Brad Stuver and Austin FC. That, that gives you right away an idea of how they want to play. They'll build now that Swiderski is involved after he missed, I think, the first, at least the first game. Um, he's, he's the focal point in the attack, which they need. I like him as a player. I don't know if they have the support around him right now to really help this team thrive. But yeah, there's there's building blocks for Charlotte. I don't think they're going to be world beaters in the East, but there's been there's been some good things out of this team so far. Yeah, I, I've t I've brought up that quote in the past couple of times, like the re the we are screwed quote, which is which was a dour look uh, to how Charlotte. An iconic um, quote, though. An iconic, iconic quote. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, that's going to go down in MLS lore. Um, but it didn't leave like obviously. I'm uh, based in Pennsylvania, so I haven't seen a lot of Charlotte uh, before the season, you know, in preseason stuff. I didn't see much of them at all. And so when Ramirez comes out with that quote, it's like, oh, Charlotte's screwed. Like, they, like their coach is even saying it. But I thought in the first game, they were pretty entertaining and didn't deserve that result. I mean, obviously, when you play the Galaxy, the Galaxy are a good team. They're going to, you know, m most of the time, they're going to handle that game as they did. But Charlotte's been really good besides that. Really good, at least based off what the expectations were, which was going to be a wooden spoon contender. I don't think that they're that. No, it certainly doesn't seem that way, if for no other reason than Inter-Miami exists, who, who have been really awful to start the season. I, I don't think they have a whole lot going for them right now. I'm not, I'm really not sure where Charlotte stand right now, to be honest with you. I, like I said, there, there's good things about them. I still wouldn't rule out wooden spoon contention just yet, but for me, so much of it hinges on 
who else they're able to add? You know, the you know, wide player, I shoot, uh, the, the name and the pronunciation escapes me, but the Derby it's, County. Joeyak is how the non Joeyak, yes, yes, yeah, perfect. Joseviak, Thank okay. you. Yeah. Um, I still, I'm sure, butchered it, but I know who you're yeah, talking yeah. about. We're on the same page now. Yeah, I got I don't, he doesn't really move the needle for me a whole lot as, a, as an attacking option for them. Maybe he, he slaps in at wing back and they stick with the back three. Even then, there needs to be moves made for this team. I don't think they've they've hit on enough signings. Obviously, things have moved slower from a player acquisition standpoint than they would have liked. Of course, that's the case. But there's there's some good things defensively. I'm not really sold on this team yet. Uh, it seems to me that other teams can progress the ball fairly easily against them. The diamond was a nice look, uh, protecting valuable space against uh, against New England. But even that win against New England comes while the Revs are are in CCL or just had crashed out of CCL, and there's no Buxa, there's no Bow. So it, it's a it's still up in the air for me with Charlotte right now. But again, things to like in areas for them to grow. Are there any other um, broader storylines in MLS that you want to touch on before we get to uh, the uh, the World Cup qualifying window that's coming up? Like any um, like team specific stuff that you've seen? One other thing I'll mention, and this is this is mostly because I've been telling myself that I should talk about them more is the Union. You know, you, Joe, you said you're you're based in in Pennsylvania. Yeah, the, the Union, Union are fan. a good team. The Union are a good team right now. They're doing a lot of the same stuff that they've been doing. I, I've been meaning to check the numbers on this, but it looks to me like they're high-pressing a bit more this year than they than they did last year. They don't have Jameer Montero, so they're they're able to be a bit more workmanlike in central midfield. I'm guessing that plays a little part in that, but again, I should go back and check the data on that. But they're top of the East right now through the first month of the season, 10 points. They have you know tied for the best record in Major League Soccer. They are, they're strong. I mean, there's a lot to like about this group. They don't do anything crazy. We know what we get from the union at this point, but credit to Jim Curtin for continuing to manufacture and build this team into a good squad, along with Ernst Tanner in that front office year after year now. You lose Brendan Aronson, you lose Mark McKenzie, you lose Jamiro Montero. They're losing talent. And, and to my eye, they still haven't hit on a striker. You know, they go out and they get a striker this offseason. They get Julian Carranza as well from inside Major League Soccer. Those players, I don't think have had a massive impact on this team yet. And yet they're still out there getting points and getting results. So credit to Jim Curtin and, and all of his players, of course, for the work that they're doing with the union right now. Yeah, I wasn't going to mention it, but I like that you brought it up because I think losing Montero hurt, losing um, obviously those guys in pr uh, prior years uh, leading into kind of last season and, and now this season definitely hurt. But the union were able to turn over, I think American soccer analysis put it out like 90% of the team's yeah. minutes where they came back. So it wasn't that much of a turnover and, you know, it really only uh, Casper Shiboko and Montero departing in the off season. And so it, it's nice to see some of uh, the good things that we saw last year come back the, with the strikers. I think it's going to get figured out. Um, Carranza hasn't had like super significant minutes so far. He's started one or two games um, and Mikel Ura, who they brought in from Bronby in uh, Denmark only had about 30 minutes versus Montreal. So I'm not willing to, you know, write him off yet, certainly after sure. like only half an hour, basically. But yeah, I'm as a union fan, I'm excited and not a ton of goal creation, like not a ton of um, possession in the attacking third so far. And yet, you know, they're still able to find goals and defensively it's as solid as ever. So as a union fan, I'm quite happy about that. Um, yeah. I, I basically touched on most of what I want to now in MLS. So I think we can kind of flip it over to the, you know, the big talk in the soccer world. Um, and especially in the U S uh, is tonight, the U S take on Mexico at 10 PM in the Azteca uh, last week on TSS um, in the roster prediction pod, 
you guys, uh, I have your roster that you put down um, and your starting lineup in that game there, what would have been your ideal starting lineup with the entire pool available for tonight? So, I mean, it kind of depends on how we want to think about this game. Are we thinking about it in isolation or are we thinking about it with the context of the other games around it? What do you want here, Joey? Um, I guess I'll start with that, that big question that you've definitely seen if you're anywhere on social media is do, <laughs> do you, do you play the a roster sure. with the best available roster or do you, maybe start some would-be starters for the Panama game, knowing that it's hard to win in the Azteca and it's even harder to get up and play three days later after playing in the Azteca. Yeah. Which which side of that argument do you fall on? And give me your argument to support your response, I guess. I definitely fall on the don't play a full first team for the Mexico game. I fall squarely on that side. I don't fall on the rotate all 11 outfield players. I'm not really sure there's many folks saying that at all. But to to qualify for the World Cup or to avoid falling below fourth in the table, and obviously you want to be top three because then you don't have to deal with playoff against uh, Oceania to make it into the World Cup. But to avoid falling out of the top four, the U.S. has to make sure that both Panama and Costa Rica don't catch up. And they play both of those teams in this window, the second game against Panama and the third game against Costa Rica. So to, to do that and to stay above at least one, but ideally both of those teams, you have to take points off of them, and you, especially Panama. If we focus on Panama, they're the second game, and they're the most immediate threat to the U.S. in terms of the schedule and in terms of their position in the table. You need a result against Panama, and the risk is you go out there and you burn your legs against Mexico for Christian Pulisic and for Gio Reyna and for Tyler Adams and for Yunus Musa. You go out there and you do that, and I think those are probably the four key guys in that respect. Then you come back against Panama in what is, at that point, really a must-win game. If you lose that game or if you don't get a result against Panama, or, or even if you don't get a point against Panama, you're, you're in trouble, right? So if you go out there and burn the legs of the Azteca, even if you win that game, it doesn't actually accomplish the goal of distancing yourselves from Panama and from Costa Rica. So that's the argument that's going around right now that I, I subscribe to, for the, for, the, you know, for the most part, I think I subscribe to all of it. That's the argument around maybe not going out and trying to, to really, in terms of your line, at least play for that result. Of course, you still change and go for that result. You want to have the players out there that are doing well and are, are being aggressive no matter who's in. But really, I think going out there and playing a full first choice lineup would be a mistake. Yeah, I am squarely on that side of the argument too. So with that in mind, um, what would be your starting 11 if you could pull from any of the eligible USMNT players um, in the world? And I guess you can kind of piggyback, piggyback off of that. And what were your thoughts on the roster um, compared to your initial thoughts um, that on that pod that you had last week? Sure. Yeah, I'll start with thoughts on the roster. Of course, the Dest injury hurts a lot. And, and missing him in this game and in this window is a, a big problem for the U.S., John Brooks not being in is not really surprising, but I think he's a player that would help the U.S. It's a strange situation, certainly with things it appears going on behind the scenes that we're all just not privy to. So there's that. There weren't a ton of other surprises for me. James Sands being included was a bit of a surprise, but I really like that he's here. He brings center back depth and he brings depth at the six, especially with Tyler Adams on a yellow card. I think that's, that's helpful because if Adams gets a yellow, he misses a game regardless of, of when and, and how that yellow card takes place. Other than that, I don't know that there were a ton of surprises. The nines, maybe the only other really interesting part of that roster with Jordan Pufok making it, given the form he's had in Switzerland. I, I wasn't 
really banging the drum to get him involved, especially after what we saw back against Canada earlier in World Cup qualifying. But he is the 1-9, I guess maybe Jesus Herrera with his performance against Portland, but he's the 1-9 who's really scoring goals for the U.S. So getting him involved is completely fine with me. As far as a lineup for the Mexico game, with the context of the Panama game and the Costa Rica game, I really believe this being the two most important in this window. I think you play a mixture of first-choice guys and, and maybe guys that wouldn't generally be the first choice for a game like this. So goalkeeper, you can play all three games. So Zach Steffen, if he is the number one, I think he belongs in this group with Matt Turner out with injury. So Zach Steffen in goal, I would still keep the, the same two center backs, Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman, who we think are, are starters for this U.S. team at this point. I'd have them in the middle of the back line. I, I don't really have a strong preference for either of the fullback positions, to be completely honest with you. If, if you're concerned about, uh, about Jedi Robinson's ability to go 90 and then 90 again, then yeah, you play George Bellow in that, in that game on the left. He's played against Mexico before recently. I'm not against that. You get DeAndre Yedlin at, at right back, especially with Reggie Cannon yesterday, I believe, dealing with some, some inconclusive COVID tests, so he didn't train with the team. Yedlin seems like the obvious choice at, at right back for me. I would start Kellen Acosta as the number six. You get a set-piece prowess, and, and you save Tyler Adams for Panama. Although there's a, there's a compelling argument for getting Adams in there as well. But I, I would start Acosta there, certainly. I would probably start De La Torre, and I, I'd probably start – this is a – I mean, this is a tough one. I, I would probably start – I don't enjoy this. Roldan or Busio as an other eight, that's one of those times where you don't love the options, but to keep the math in place, you do that job. And then up front, I would probably start – I'd probably start PFOC as the nine and then out wide Areola and Tim Wea. Even though Wea is on a yellow card, I think you have the depth out wide to get him a run out and have him be the creative attacking hub in that front three. And, and you hope that he can work some magic, even though, like I said, you don't desperately need that in this game. Yeah. Uh, it's particularly in some of those, like the left back spot, these kind of second eight spot. It's, it's tough because in if this if this game was in Cincinnati, if this game was four months ago, this this lineup would have not would not have taken the field. It would have been the first choice lineup, and so it's it's almost hard for I know for some fans to, you know, kind of parse why this is happening in this game compared to four months ago because we so thoroughly dominated them four months ago. Mm, thoroughly is maybe an exaggeration, but we we played a better game well, than them. Yeah, with with most of these same guys. So I think that's what's hard for fans to kind of take in and be like, hey, why don't we just go for it? This is Mexico. This is our, our rival. But I'm with you um, on those uh, those players that you would uh, rotate in. On the pod last week, you said that you would start Zardis for this game. Mm. Yep. I, I think that's an interesting discussion point. I'm not as anti-Giasi as some people are. So what do you see in him, I guess, still with this team? Yeah, I think my my statement there comes down to just not feeling especially passionate about any of the nines in the pool right now. Ferreira is the most fun by far, and he's had some good moments against bad teams for the U.S., admittedly. But even he hasn't separated himself with the national team at all, right? So Pepe, not playing, not really scoring goals for the national team since he came on against Honduras and, and was good in that window in 2021. PFOC hasn't been good with the U.S. when he was here. He's back in now with another chance to prove himself. Josh Sargent hasn't been scoring goals with club or country. Daryl DK out injured and, and really I don't think is, is quite national team level right now in my view. So Zardes for me is a guy who brings aggressive running in the press, knows his angles. He's a threat on set pieces. He gets in the box and he makes good runs. None of those things 
are, are probably elite from Jossi Zardes, maybe outside of his movement. But even then, the chances haven't been there really for him in the past. But I, I don't think you're going to get elite level production out of anyone you're putting at that nine spot for this game against Mexico. So that's that's kind of where that came from. It came from me assuming, one, that he was going to be in this squad. He's not, as it turns out, which, again, totally fine. Not much separating him from other nines and not much separating them from each other. But it came from me thinking he was going to be in the squad and also just thinking maybe he's got that bit of experience and he, he understands some of the smaller aspects of play. But I'm, I can't really be bothered a whole lot either way, to be totally honest with you. I think that might be a slight point of contention. I think that Ferreira has shown that he is the number one and PFOC has certainly deserved a call up based off what he's doing at the club level because, mm. and I said it on the, um, the round table pod that I did last week uh, to break down the roster that like 22 goals, I think it is now um, in all comps is a good total for any striker in the world. Like, it's not like he's doing, it's not like he's so much better than his competition level, but he's doing it regardless in Europe against teams that are also good. He scored in the champions league. Like, He's shown this season like sustained form, which is important. And I know you were making that point about um, the September 5th game against Canada. I, I think that's just a while ago. And so if we're going to base people like Zardes, like Pepe off more recent form, the recent form for PFOC has been good compared to those yeah. other players that it hasn't been as good. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested to see like, why you think that Ferreira and PFOC don't necessarily have a leg up on some of those other guys. Well, it just, it comes back to, I agree with everything you said. I think I'm, I'm perfectly happy to see PFOC in this group. Uh, I think it's, it's good for him that he's here certainly. And, and hopefully that translates to some product on the field. I just don't think we've seen any, and this is, it's not just, that I don't think this, it's, it's that it's true. We haven't seen any nine go out there on the field for the U S and put in a dominant performance. Right. And, and I don't even know how long at this point, that's just the reality of the situation. No U.S. nine has, has scored certainly in, in quite some time. They didn't score at all, I believe, in the, in the last window. Yeah, they didn't score any, any goals from the nines in the last window. I will say the, the best nine performance in that window, in my view, was Ferreira against El Salvador. And that's a, kind of a weird thing to say for some people because he misses one really high-profile chance in that game. But it's about getting into those spots to even allow yourself to have the opportunity to shoot. And Ferreira did that in a way that I'm not sure other nines in the U.S. pool could do on a consistent basis. So I just don't think there's, there's been enough consistent proof from any starting striker in the U S to say like, it has to be this guy or it has to be this guy. I think if you, if you're going to that extreme, you're probably exaggerating to some extent. So I'd, I'd like to see Ferreira in this window. I'd be curious to see PFOC. I'd love to see Pepe regain his form. I just don't know number one, who we're going to see when we're going to see them or, or if we see them, are they going to be any good? I don't, I'm not confident in any one of those things. Yeah. Um, I think the confidence is certainly a problem. I think because we haven't seen a performance, like you were saying, in the U.S. shirt, at least in a very long time, uh, at least in terms of uh, matches played, I was looking at the um, U.S.'s uh, like recent, I put that in quotes, recent history. The last really good nine game, I think, was Daryl D.K. versus Martinique in the Gold Cup. That's really <laughs> the last one I could draw on for, from. That was a great game, by the way. That was a lot of fun to watch. Um, but I feel like we've kind of hit the nines pretty well. Um, if you want to, you can. Do you want to take a crack at why Brooks continues to not get the call up? I, I There's not much to go off of, but... 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost impossible to say. We know what, what he said, and we know what Greg Berhalter has said. Berhalter's continued to talk about how he doesn't fit with what the team is wanting to do in any given window. It happened in their previous window. It happened again in this window. He's talked about how there's deficiencies in John Brooks's game that once they get out of qualifying and hopefully are headed towards the World Cup from their perspective, that maybe they'll be able to get him back in and work on those deficiencies. It, that just doesn't make sense to me, that, that deficiency argument. He's 29. You know, he's not going to develop his game. He's, if anything, he's going to be on the downward slope, not the upward slope at this point. So that's, that's a strange thing for me to think about and, and to rationalize. And Brooks has said, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to get back in this team. That's what I want. I'm going to push to be a part of the World Cup roster. That's, that's all well and good, but nothing that we've seen makes me believe that there's anything close to a reconciliation between these two parties at this point. Maybe there is. There's a ton of things that I'm not privy to and, and don't know about and don't understand and don't have that behind-the-scenes info, but Brooks is a center back unlike any others in the pool and having his skill set, it might not be right for every game, and I sympathize with Peralta on that. It might not be, but for some games, it's, it's got to be right because he does stuff that not, not, no, no other single person in this pool can do. So that's that's my John Brooks spiel right there, Joey. Yeah, I think it's just a tough situation because this is a player who scored in a World Cup. We have a quick count all of zero of those players on the roster right now. <laughs> we it's it's those are the sad truths, and it's like I want to be able to su- to support both guys, Brooks and Burhalter. And the tough thing is, you just don't know what's gone on to make any kind of claim whatsoever. So it's just a hard situation like we can hear what uh greg has to say about his style but it's just hard to believe that his style is so limited to what like his uh, to a specific kind of way that greg wants to play that he wouldn't call him in for basically three straight windows versus uh, opponents who play a variety of different ways in a variety of different atmospheres so yeah i i think that's kind of it because i don't think we can um put more into that uh what, what do you want to see out of Gio Reyna in this window, uh, especially mm. as a player who's just kind of coming back from the injury, uh, put in a good shift for Dortmund um, on the weekend, but we haven't seen much from him for any kind of sustained minutes this year. So what are you looking? I'd love to see him centrally at some point in this window. I, I, I'm also happy to see him out wide, but given how much trouble I had trying to make a starting lineup that was slightly rotated for the Mexico game at picking that second eight after De La Torre, Man, it, it says something, right? It says something about the lack of options. When Weston McKinney's not in this group, they hurt for depth at the eight. No Paxton Pomichol as well, who is not, that's not surprising, but I would love to see a U.S. shirt at some point soon, hopefully in June for Nations League. Let's not forget about those games, which I definitely had until about two weeks ago. You know, there's opportunities to get some new players. Pomichol's not especially new, but you, you know what I mean. There's opportunities to get new guys involved, but right now, there's not much eight depth and, and Reina can do that job. He's done it for Dortmund. He's done it, you know, this season when he's been healthy, he did some of that over the weekend. I think he would bring a lot of value. I don't know that you do that against Mexico. Certainly not from a starting lineup perspective. I would be very surprised if Reina starts tonight against Mexico, but I think he brings a lot of quality. He could be the guy to pair against Musa against Panama, or he could be on the wing against Panama, which feels a bit more likely to me, but I just want to see him play. I hope that he can get on the field and get the U.S. minutes in, in each one of these games, certainly in that big game against Panama, because he's maybe the most talented player in this whole pool, and we haven't seen him in a U.S. shirt, and, and we haven't really seen him healthy since September. Yeah. Um, when it pertains, as it pertains to Gio, I think he needs to start the Panama game, and based off his fitness levels and his performance in that game, you can make the judgment call about Costa Rica. I 
for him to see the field versus Mexico, I think is criminal negligence. I think he cannot play this game for a variety of reasons, but mainly the health thing, like 7,500 feet is tough for a player who's in peak condition. And to say that he's in peak condition coming off what six months at this point of on and off injury, mainly off injury. Um, it, it's tough. Uh, what do you see in the winger uh, pool um, as, as it pertains to specifically this window? Uh, because you got Pulisic, you got Reyna, um, probably going to play winger at some point. We'll see. Um, you, and obviously uh, Areola uh, as well. How do you kind of see the rotation going? Uh, I, I think we'll see at least one, if not two different starters from Mexico to Panama. And it's hard to predict from Panama to Costa Rica because – there's a lot of things that can happen. That game may or may not matter for the U.S., which means we may or may not see certain players. But I think there's a good chance we see Areola and Wea on the wing against Mexico, and we see Pulisic and Reyna on the wing starting against, uh, against Panama. I think there's a chance we see one of those guys flipped with another. I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I would expect rotation from one game to the next. If for no other reason, then you, know, you don't have Brendan Aronson, but you still have depth in that spot. Peralta clearly trusts Jordan Morris, who's, who's still, you know, relatively recently back from injury in the last few months, certainly. You've got Jordan Morris, who we trust. You have Paul Ariola, who we clearly trust. And then those other players, so as much as, as Wea and Pulisic and Reyna can go, Pulisic appears to be in much better form now. He's been good with Chelsea over the last month than he was in the last window, where he was really, really poor for the U.S. and hadn't been playing well for Chelsea. It feels like you might be able to get more out of him in this window. So there's talent here. And I think the U.S. should have faith in those wingers because it's one of, if not their deepest position group. Yeah, I think um, between the right back position and the winger position, that could be half our team if we wanted it to be. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think a lack of players in any of those positions is going to be a particular problem anytime in the future. I think I kind of hit on the player-specific stuff that I wanted to. I kind of want to take a step back and look at the team as a whole and how we've gotten here over the course of, what, five windows? Um from that game on the 2nd of September in 2021 against El Salvador, where there was so much hope to now where I think we're still hopeful because we still know it's a young crew and, you know, they can find it at some point, but it never has seemed to really click. The closest it's ever gotten to clicking is against Mexico, but it hasn't really hit um, over the last couple of months. So how do you, how have you seen the team and how have you seen it evolve over the course of qualifying? Uh, we've seen different players come and go right from that first game against El Salvador way back in September. You had Conrad De La Fuente starting out wide and you had Josh Sargent involved in that game and in that whole window. You know, that that hasn't been the case for the U.S. since then. Those players haven't been involved. So the, so the roster has changed. Weston McKinney has grown to be a really key man. I was tempted to say the key man, and he he honestly might be that. I think he's the key for man. The US. Yeah, I mean, he, he's grown into a huge role after that whole Nashville snafu, right? So that's that's been a a developing storyline for this team. Matt Turner's grown to be a bigger part of this team over the last eight months or so, even though it seems like Berlter still has Stefan as his number one. That's changed a little bit. So there's been individual player things that have changed, but there, there hasn't been to, I think where you're leading me with that question, Joey, there hasn't been quite as much tactical development and, and tactical gelling as I think a lot of us would have hoped. And that doesn't just go for World Cup qualifying. That kind of goes for, the last three years, right, under Greg Berhalter. Things have changed, certainly, and I think the U.S. team has gotten a lot better in some ways, in certain phases of play from January 2019 in that, you know, uh, friendly in Glendale against Panama to now. 
a lot has changed. The shape of times have, have changed. The shapes of times have changed. The, the pressing and really whole defensive structure has changed and approach has changed. But when the U.S. has the ball, there's still issues, right? There's still a lack of, of real movement at times, a lack of quality and a lack of understanding. And it's hard with a young group. I sympathize with Greg Berhalter in that regard. There's not a lot of experience. We talked about that earlier on this roster. That makes his job hard. But these are talented players. And I, I hope that in this window, for their sakes, that we see them playing some good soccer, particularly at home against Panama. I think that's the, the game that's number one, most important. And, and number two, will be most conducive playing in Orlando at, at home to playing some really nice, aesthetically pleasing Baralter branded soccer, because that's what he wants them to do. And that's how he set this team up to try to break down blocks. And Panama is going to bring out a 4-4-2 mid block. They'll probably press a little bit, but they'll, they'll most likely be a little deeper. It'll be on the U.S. to win that game, to take control and to win it. That's a big test for this group. We've seen them come up against tests somewhat like that in the past. There have been some good results and bad results. But it, it really does all come down to this window, even though we haven't seen as much on-field development as I think a lot of folks would like. And it's a great point with the mix and matching of players at times. You know, the Conrad De La Fuente, Josh Sargent, Gio Reyna line. I saw a tweet like, that's never going to be seen ever again, probably. Like, that's to go from that which at the time was like okay like this is a this is a fine way to like this was a fine front line um only six months ago to now is certainly something i think it also speaks to the amount of injuries the amount of like just like unfortunate um situations that the u.s has had to deal with and that's not to say that other teams haven't had injuries or i know covid bans um travel bans were a big part through the first you know two windows of qualifying but the way that the injuries have rocked, particularly the U.S.'s, you know, top end players is disappointing. If you, you were going to hope to create kind of cohesion between, you know, a, a good 11 or 15 or so, um, that's gone out the window at this point. Um, particularly with Gio Reyna getting injured in the first window, Weston obviously injured for this one, Pulisic kind of in and out as it goes. Um, I, I think it's tough because, what you say about the tactics and the no, you know, real tactical way of playing, um, the way it's slowed down in the attacking third at times is a hundred percent true, and every fan will agree with you. But it, from your, you know, kind of ten thousand foot view, what could the U.S. be doing better, or do you not know what we could be doing better? Well, I mean, I, I think over at TSS we talk about this kind of thing a lot because it's the regular pattern for the U.S. when they come up against teams that will will defend and force them to have the ball, which is not something that Mexico is going to do. That that's going to be a, a pretty open game, I would imagine. But when you come up against teams like Panama and, and teams like Costa Rica and, and teams that are going to sit a little deeper, like Honduras certainly did last round or last last window El Salvador, you know, the, the responsibility is on you, the United States, to own the ball and to create chances with it. And and I want to preface anything I say with the fact that breaking down a, a low block or a compact defense is hands down the hardest thing to do in soccer, without a doubt. There's a reason why we don't see Manchester City win every game by 4-0. Even though they have so much more talent than 95% of the teams they play in the Premier League, we don't see that happen because it's really, really hard. There's a reason why teams defend in low blocks. So it's extremely difficult to do that. And, and if there are people out there saying, oh, it's, it's so easy, you just have to move the ball, or blah, blah, blah. You know, there might be a little truth to that, but it's certainly not easy. There might be truth to the moving the ball part, but it's not easy. So that being said, and that should, should sort of color how we, how we think about this and talk about this, the U.S. does at times need to move the ball quicker. In the last window, there were moments where that, that wasn't happening. The ball was sticking to people's feet, especially it's happened with Christian Pulisic, I think. So there's individual breakdowns. There's sloppy passes. 
there was plenty of that in the last one. There's in the window, and there's been plenty of that throughout qualifying and throughout Berhalter's tenure. So there's there's those pieces of it. There's also been some positioning things, you know, from the first two games of the last window to that third game against Honduras, the eights were in different spots. So in the first two games, they were, if I'm remembering correctly, a little wider and a little deeper, trying to sort of create overloads out wide, but it wasn't particularly effective. Then against Honduras, they moved more central, still popping into that fullback space from time to time, but it wasn't the same look. And against a granted really poor Honduras team, the U.S. looked a lot better in possession. I thought they created chances in a, in a more simplified way despite getting most of their, their goals on set pieces, all their goals really on set pieces. So there's been tactical issues that are there, and I think cleaning up some of those positioning things, helping players identify the right moments to rotate and, and what, what spaces they're supposed to occupy, that's key. But this is a hard thing to do. It's really, really challenging what the U.S. is trying to do and what Peralta has stated as his goal to change the way the world views American soccer. It's easy to say it's really, really hard to do, and I think this U.S. team is, is and has been facing that reality for the last couple of years now. The hard thing with qualifying in particular is it's really, I mean, for the U.S. Uh, um, and in CONCACAF, it's basically 14 games to go to the World Cup, which is a lot compared to some uh, qualifying um, like uh, in like confederations around the world. But in like a domestic league scenario over the course of nine months, that's an incredibly small sample size to right. determine the best team in the world. So that is that has weighed against the U S at times because we're seeing these guys try to gel in three game, one week windows. It's just really hard to do. How have you seen Greg Burhalter as a manager? Not necessarily how has he done, but how has he evolved through the process? Do you think? During this world cup qualifying cycle, I think he's, he's probably gotten a little wiser, right? This is his first ever World Cup qualifying stint as a manager, right? He's never done this before. His staff really hasn't done this before, I believe. So these are new experiences for him and for this group. I think he's probably learned lessons about minute management, right? This is a weird World Cup cycle. We've never seen these three-game windows before. There's been all but one have been three-game windows for the U.S. We haven't really seen that before. So I think he's learned some of those things. But in terms of tactical stuff, there hasn't really been a whole lot of macro changes. You know, his team obviously is, is going out there to play to win hasn't always worked, but this team is, is largely the same and how they want to play and how they go about doing business. I think today as we're recording March 24th, 2022, as they were in that first game against, uh, against El Salvador on September 2nd. That's the identity of this team. That's not likely to change. They've maybe been more pragmatic at times. There have been ups and downs, certainly, but I don't, I'm not sure there have been a ton of real observable changes for this U.S. team from September to now. What's been the biggest surprise so far in qualifying for you? I guess just USMNT specific. Sure. It's been the emergence of Weston McKinney, for sure. In his form that he picked up with Juve and all of those things he's playing, or he was playing, really now out for the rest of the season with a foot injury. He was playing the best soccer of any American on the planet, right? That's a pretty cool distinction to have. And it was clear to see. His ability is, is unmatched in this U.S. pool at very specific things. And he was playing very, very well. His reemergence after being sent home and, and really being suspended in the middle of this World Cup qualifying campaign is not something that I really expected to see from this U.S. team. And the fact that he's become as important as we all know he is says a lot about him as a player, I, I think, certainly. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, if you follow his dad on Twitter, he's definitely saying some of the same things. Um, like just the development of him as a person, it's hard to say this from you know our view 
but just even watching the games, he he looks like he's more commanding than he was at the beginning. He just now when he now when he's on the ball, he just has a presence about him that he didn't really have Nations League and even at the beginning of World Cup qualifying. So even nine months or so, six months really from the start of qualifying, it's it's been fun to see how he's you know developed his playing styles, um, both club and country. I think we're at that time now where I got to ask you to make some predictions. Uh, let's start with tonight. How do you see tonight going? Um, not just the score, but kind of how the game goes in U.S. Sure. and Mexico. And then how do you see the table looking after tonight in all of CONCACAF? Okay, so for U.S. and Mexico, I think it's going to be aggressive. I think both teams are going to be vertical in how they play, and they're going to try to, to get out and run. The U.S. might end up sitting a little deeper at times. Uh, I think that would serve them well, but I think they'll step forward. I think they'll press and be aggressive, and Mexico will do the same. Um, so that's, that's how I envision the flow of the game going. Uh, I don't think, and, and this isn't a shock to say, the U.S. certainly isn't favorites in this game. I know that Mexican fans are feeling antsy about their team just as U.S. fans are feeling antsy about their team. The U.S. has won the last three U.S.-Mexico games, which is huge. It's a, it's a massive streak, one of the longest I believe tied for the longest U.S. winning streak in the history of this rivalry. But, I mean, it's not like the U.S. dominated Mexico over the summer. You know, they were fortunate, I think, to, to really get out with results in, in one, certainly the Nations League game, if not that Gold Cup final as well. So Mexico, I think, played the better soccer of those games, but couldn't get the results. And then the U.S.A., outside of a, a chance against a chance that Mexico had in that first half, maybe one other look, was the better team in Cincinnati and woke up qualifying. So it's not like Mexico's on this all-time high right now. They're not out of the woods for qualifying it either. But I do think Mexico will win this game. There's a chance the U.S. gets a result or gets three points, but I don't think it's, it's ridiculous to say that Mexico is the favorite, and I don't think it's ridiculous to say they'll win. As far as the rest of qualifying, I think Canada will get a result at Costa Rica, which I believe would see them through. Yeah, uh, I, I could be mistaken about yes, that. Yes, I believe certainly a win, but I believe even a draw for Canada, and they're through. And anything but three points for Costa Rica, and they're eliminated. Okay, there you go. So I, I think Canada will eliminate Costa Rica. I think that will, will do the U.S. a big favor um, tonight, which will take some importance away from that Costa Rica game on the last day. I think the, the Jamaica and El Salvador game doesn't really matter for the sake of World Cup qualifying, but Panama and Honduras, I do think Panama will win that game, especially at home. And that will put them close with the U.S., especially if, if the U.S.-Mexico game goes how I kind of think it will in terms of the end result. That will put Panama right on the U.S.'s heel and make it clear why this Panama game is so, so important. So that's, that's what I'm thinking. Panama's going to win. Canada's going to get a result. Um, I don't know if it'll be a win or not away to Costa Rica, but they'll do something, which will certainly help the U.S. out, and I think Mexico will beat the U.S. Okay, so just a quick touch on the Canada thing. Um, there are scenarios that Canada can get one point and qualify. If they get three points, they nothing else matters they're through right right so yep. a tie and other results going their way could see Canada because because if they and I'm just trying to think out loud here because if they get a point they're on 25 points right now they add one that puts them on 26 that's still only nine points above Panama Panama um, yeah. and would be would be less if Panama win it could be six so that would still I mean goal difference would have to go pretty crazy here but I don't believe they would be in one of those automatic spots with just a draw necessarily no, no, it would have to. It's basically dependent on a Honduras uh, win or a Honduras result. I think. Um, right. I I basically agree with your assessment of the uh, U.S. Mexico game. 
I think that the U.S. could scrap out a point. Like, it won't be that much different from the Nations League in that the USA were able to absorb pressure. They gave up two goals. They got three. I don't think a, a five-goal game is in the books for tonight, but we'll see. Um, I, I think the U.S. has shown that they can absorb pressure at a remarkably high level, a high level that even makes me think that the USA could be, competi- could be competitive against even better teams than Mexico because of the way that they're able to absorb pressure and hit on the counter. The only problem is that the lineup that we're going to see tonight might not be the lineup that's most effective at hitting on the counter. So I think mm. if Mexico gets one or gets two, that's where it becomes like, I don't see anything really the USA being able to hit on the counter as effectively as they would have hoped in the, you know, as, as well as they did, um, I guess in the nation's league over the summer, even though, at the end of the day, those goals came from set pieces. They were U.S. was able to produce some stuff on the counter that just didn't find its way in the back of the net. But yeah, Mexico should be the favorite, and they really need to win this game. I think if, um, j- just for like the Mexican fans' sanity, I guess, because to not get even a win versus the U.S. in four tries is going to feel like a complete and utter disappointment. Uh, yeah. How do you see the rest of uh, qualifying going? So, you know, using the U.S. losing to Mexico and Canada getting a result, how do you see kind of the table shaking out? And specifically with the U.S., how do you see the U.S. doing in the final two games after this Mexico game? I think the U.S. should be heavy favorites to qualify regardless of what happens against Mexico. I think they will control that game against Panama. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. Certainly Panama is a good team and does a lot of things well. But the U.S. has better players. They're not as, or at least they shouldn't be as bothered about winning their first game as, as Panama is winning theirs because they, they need results in, in really all three of these games Panama does. So I, I think the U.S. should win that game at home against Panama. And if Canada takes care of business against Costa Rica, that last game really won't, won't be impactful or at least largely impactful for the U.S. So I, I expect the U.S. to qualify, Canada and Mexico as well. I expect Panama to finish fourth and go and, and win that playoff in, what is that, June, I believe. So. I think, or maybe, I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I, I think know, it's maybe, June. Yeah. Um, but I expect the top four to, to largely remain unchanged with Canada winning the Ocho, finishing first, and, and being first to qualify, auto-qualify. And then the USA and Mexico filling in behind it. Yeah, um, that's basically where I, I am, too. I think Mexico probably hops the USA at some point just sure. due to the schedules. Um, the question mark is Costa Rica. How does Canada play tonight without Davies and all? I they played extremely well last window, got nine points without them. Um, if they're not able to get a result, that's when it starts to get worrying because if Costa Rica continues the good form that they had in the last window, uh, that could be potentially worrying for the U.S. If the U.S. isn't able to um, take a point tonight, uh, they would have to really take the three points versus Panama or really, really leave it late uh, versus Costa Rica. Um, quickly, uh, and I guess we can kind of wrap up, how do you – view Canada now as mm. they've kind of slid their way into being a major player in CONCACAF yeah. with pretty, pretty good players too. I love watching Canada. I, I really enjoy watching them play. They are not quite as aesthetically pleasing as the U S or Mexico and how they try to go about possessing the ball. But man, John Herdman is a fascinating character from a managerial standpoint, the team and the way they play, they have a very clear idea of what they're trying to do. They have some very interesting rotations with the ball, without the ball, I wrote a piece about their tactics for the Athletic uh, before the last window where the USA lost to Canada 2-0 in Hamilton. 
this is a really good team playing without Alfonso Davies right now, who's, who's working his way back slowly for Byron, which is good news for, for him. And obviously we wish him the best in his health, but man, between Davies and Tejon Buchanan, who I think is a phenomenal player right now in, in playing in Belgium. Then they've got Jonathan David, who I would be shocked if he doesn't move to a bigger club um, and, and leave Lille in the, in the summer. Then Kyle Lennon as well. I mean, there's just so much talent with this team and with this group. It's hard for me to envision them not making noise at the World Cup because they are just that fun. Yeah, and their playing style is pretty conducive to how you want to play if you're not going to have a ton of possession. Um, just they are able to absorb pressure so well, kind of like what I was saying with the U.S. against um, p- potentially better opponents. And then I think that their counterattack is even better than um, the United States because when you have Alfonso Davies, who is arguably the best left back in the world, Tejon Buchanan, those guys just coming with speed and then elite finishers in the box uh, who are both pretty in form, especially with the national team. It's, it's fun to watch. I love watching them. I'm not in the U.S. Uh, contingent that is like absolutely hating Canada. Um, <laughs> that, that's not me. I, I think just as a up-and-coming soccer team, I can respect that because this is a team that, what was it? They lost like 4-0 to like, I forget, like was it Honduras a couple years back? Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah, it was something like that. That was just a heartbreaking loss. And so for them to see just, the rapid rise is a lot of fun. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And I like to do this with all my guests. Do you want to kind of plug how people can find you in the future? I know a lot of people probably already know where to find you. Sure. Yeah, I think that the easiest place to find things I'm working on is by following me on Twitter at Joe C. Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y. You can also listen to me on the Total Soccer Show, which is always a blast working with Taylor and Ryan and Graham. You can read my writing regularly on MLSsoccer.com, occasionally a couple of other places as well. But again, yeah, at Josie Lowry on Twitter is the best spot. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Your knowledge of this is just off the charts, and it's fun to have a fellow Joe on the pod to break down (laughs) what's going to be an incredibly stressful and uh, really a make-or-break week for U.S. soccer um, as they head to Mexico tonight, Panama on Sunday and Costa Rica next Wednesday. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on. It's really been a pleasure. Of course, Joey. The Joe's got to stick together. So again, I want to thank Joe so much for coming on. That was a ton, a ton of fun uh, for me, and I hope that you really enjoyed listening to it as well. Uh, Just breaking down um, basically all things USMNT heading into this final qualifying window that will decide whether the U.S. makes the World Cup or will fail to qualify for a second straight window. Let's hope that it is the former, and uh, all things are pointing towards that it should be, but again, we can't take anything for granted, and I want to thank Joe for coming on and discussing all that could go right and could go wrong uh, for the U.S. as we approach this window. Like I mentioned in the intro, uh, we will be having our Discord roundtable to break down all that happened in this game versus Mexico uh, tomorrow night. So again, stay tuned uh, for the exact information um, about when that will occur. But if you have not already joined the Discord, the link will be in the podcast description. It is on my Twitter page. I really encourage you to check it out. It's just a fun place already, and hopefully we can continue to grow it, add more people, and make it just very fun. And so our roundtable, similar to uh, the third pod that we had um, with 
some of my uh, friends from the Scuff Discord. Uh, very similar looking podcast uh, that will go down tomorrow um, in the Discord. So just follow the links um, in the podcast description and you should be able to get in there if you want to participate in that discussion tomorrow night. Um, and I can't wait for that. But uh, I just want to thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, stay tuned for that roundtable episode to come out on Friday or Saturday. But until then, uh, enjoy life, enjoy the beautiful game, and I will see you then. Thank you so much for listening.